Welcome to Seeds, a show where we talk with people who are living lives of purpose and doing amazing things that make a positive impact in our world. We take time to listen to them as they reflect on their life journeys and what has shaped them into who they are today and what motivates them to be involved in what they do. Well, kia ora, everyone. Welcome along to the show. This is Stephen Mo speaking, and you're here for episode 199, which is pretty exciting for me as we're about to hit 200. This week, we're going to be speaking with Marion Johnson, who's the Chief Awesome Officer at the Ministry of Awesome. And we talk a lot about that and what they're doing, but we also go back in her past and talk about what it was like to grow up as the daughter of a diplomat, which involves lots of moving around the world quite frequently. It's a really fascinating conversation, and I know you're going to enjoy it. We also focus in on collaboration and how to foster it among organizations. I know you're going to enjoy this episode, and if you do, bear in mind that there's lots and lots in the back catalog as well, and you can find out a lot more at theseeds.nz. And if you're listening in a podcasting app, why not hit subscribe to make sure you don't miss out on future episodes? And ratings and reviews are always welcome. Now let's get into this conversation with Marion. All right. So it's a real pleasure to welcome Marion Johnson, who's the Chief Awesome Officer at Ministry of Awesome. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me, Stephen. It's really kind of you. No, it's wonderful. Um, we've known each other several years now, so yeah. it's really good to have you on Seeds. And what we do on the show is we talk with people about where they're from, and then usually that helps us to understand why they do what they do today. So in your case, could we rewind back? And I know, like me, you have an accent, so I know we've got a story here. Um, can you re- rewind like to your childhood? Um, what was that like when you were, say, four or five years old? Where did you grow up? I honestly think I, I am the luckiest person in the world for how I grew up. My father was um, American State Department, so he was an American diplomat, and I was born in Bangladesh and got to grow up in Bangladesh, India, Pakistan, Afghanistan, Kuwait, Africa, wow. just all over the world. And um, I didn't know anything else, but and I thought everybody else was kind of like me. In our environment, in our schools, everyone was like right. me. You know, they were either army kids or they were State Department or they were oil or some sort of, you know, big international company or mm. trade agency. Um, so it was the coolest way to grow up. Yeah. yeah. So how long would he be posted to places? Was it like a couple of years or shorter or longer? Or? Almost always two and a half years, two and a half to three years. And I think, I don't know if this is an official policy, but I think two and a half to three years. Um, and then they drag you back to Washington, D.C. So just in case you're going native. Um, they, they they bring you back home right. um, and remind you of um, you know who you are and where you're from and what country you're loyal to and all that kind of stuff. I don't mean yeah. it that way, but um, just to remember uh, what it is to be American. And then mm-hmm. you get trained up for your next um, posting, and generally that's language. Mm-hmm. So he'd go back to the State Department in Washington, D.C. And so me, my mom, my sister, and my brother mm-hmm. would go back to some suburb, generally Alexandria, Virginia, and we'd go to school there for about a year while he learned Arabic or French or whatever he was learning. And then we'd get sent right back out again. Wow. How yeah. fascinating. Oh, it's awesome. What, what had led him to that sort of a career? Like, had he uh, always wanted to do it? or? You know what? My dad should be on this podcast. But unfortunately, <laughs> he died two years ago, which is... Um, uh, on, on another note, I'd say I'm really happy he died two years ago because of what's happening in the States at the moment because he just wouldn't have been able to bear it. Um, but my dad was the youngest son of nine brothers and sisters. His father was a sharecropper in Georgia. 
Um, mm. Nobody in the family went to university except for my dad. Um, he became a librarian in Athens, Georgia, where he um, had a retired Ford service officer come in every day. And my dad was always reading something that the Foreign Service officer also wanted to read. So they got talking. They became really good friends. And the guy said, hey, Ray, you need to go and take the Foreign Service exam. This is not the life for you. So my dad went off to Washington, took the exam, did the interviews, and boom, we got sent to Bangladesh. Wow. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. What an what an interesting isn't life interesting the coincidences you Absolutely. know like that that person would be somebody who who had done that career. Yeah. And then to encourage your father to go for it. Exactly. Yeah. I I often think about what would my father have ended up doing. I mean he he was um, my dad was such an intellectual. He was always reading fiction, nonfiction. He. Mm. Um, my childhood was basically listening to opera all day long, classical music. My mom and my dad were always talking about, you know, what Nick's concert they were going to listen to, what record they were going to play. Mm. Um, they, they suited each other to a T. And Athens, Georgia is a great city. Don't get me wrong. It's the home of the University of Georgia. But there's not a lot of that kind of thing going on. Mm. Um, so to have met the Foreign Service officer, to have become friends with him, and then to have shipped out and then suddenly been in a world where there were actually a lot of people like that mm. and a lot of people like him. It's pretty extraordinary. Yeah, it yeah. really is. Yeah. So did you have any memories of Bangladesh or you are just there? You were born there but then left um, as a child? or? I don't think I have any memories of Bangladesh unless you count like a vague remembrance of a bathing suit. <laughs> <laughs> which were overtaken. Um, I do remember Pakistan, which mm -hmm. was the next country. Mm -hmm. um, and I definitely remember Afghanistan, which was the country after Pakistan. And, wow. and that was my favorite country for a long time. So we lived in Kabul. Um, and, and, and what was it like at that time? Um, it was just before the Russians invaded. Um, and my memory of it is just so lovely because I was a, a little kid mm -hmm. um, but it was um, so friendly um, we lived next door to uh, a very important government minister um, and so we had um, I remember there was a hole in the wall and we used to crawl through and then there were all these soldiers walking around with guns and that was very exciting for us and my parents would freak out and the <laughs> nanny would be looking looking for us nonstop. Um, but it was a very big diplomatic establishment, so lots and lots of international kids, whereas Bangladesh was a lot smaller, and it was more like my brother, me, my sister, and maybe three others, right. uh, whereas Afghanistan was just like a full-on party of internationals. Mm -hmm. um, so very, very childish memories. Mm -hmm. um, I also remember going through the Khyber Pass. That was awesome. I do remember all the snow and the trucks and... Um, the traffic jams where half the mountain had fallen down or a bridge had broken through. Mm. Just a wild childhood. Yeah, yeah, it sounds like it. Yeah. And what's that, like reflecting back on it um, with the benefit of hindsight, what's the culture like among those people in the diplomatic corps? Like you mentioned that there are people very similar to your father. Um, I'm just curious, I guess it's about the type of people that are drawn to it. And, and did you feel almost like this is a, our family? being Absolutely. so far away yeah and and the the fact of the matter is the hardest hardest part of our lives was going back to the states oh, okay that sucked yeah you know i mean it was awesome from the point of view of you know my brother and my sister and i would be thinking oh this is great we're gonna have electricity 24 7 or 
or oh, we can have you know cheeseburgers at Burger King, mm. or see a really good movie, or go to a a big shop, um, mm. and and that was really exciting. But actually, getting back to the states once we'd done all those things, it was so hard because. People had been living and being friends with each other, and they they were set. They were all set. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were always kind of trying to break in mm-hmm. um, as kids at school, always the new kid in school, and only there for a really, really short time. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember once in sixth grade, somebody, um, the whole class basically just saying I was making it all up. <laughs> <laughs> And I thought, well, you know, okay. So Um, from an early age, you had uh, that, I guess it's the international perspective, isn't it? Yeah. Like having been abroad and and seen different cultures. And I think that's the thing that ties you all up together. So it's not just Americans, obviously. Everybody Mm. in my school was from somewhere else. Mm. Um, So you'd have, um, the funny thing is, though, the English kids usually had their own school. So there was usually the like English British school, school and, yeah. and then there was the American school. Oops. Yeah. And then all the internationals, depending on who had what predilection, they'd go to the, either the English school or the American school. Yeah. Um, and they're usually about the same size. Um, so we didn't have a lot of English kids in the American school, but we had everybody else. Mm. So we had the Finns, we had the French, the Spanish, the, the whatever. And whoever were also the locals, so the local Africans or the local Afghans. But generally, um, because it was a private school, it was the highest level of whatever that country, Mm. um, you know, wherever that country was, which meant that all of the kids were um, the daughters and sons of government ministers or people who were in the kind of whoever Mm. was ruling the the country. Mm -hmm. Um, But the thing that was common with the international kids is that we felt most at home with each other Mm. and at least at home at home in our own countries Um, and there and what is it about the people who are kind of in that line of work I think they're just really curious people Mm. obviously they're more adventurous um, but there was also there was also something in it around um, having that world a a view that was much more um, you know, obviously a global view over someone who'd spent all of their time in the States or some of someone who'd spent all of their time in Spain or France, they were able to see all of the different points of view mm. and then bring it back home. Um, and yeah, I always thought that perspective was really interesting. And of course, you have the same perspective now, mm. um, having been American, now New Zealand, mm. and seeing what's happening back in the States, um, as, as I do and did, you know, while we were traveling around yeah 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 i think it's just just a highlight i guess it's that it's a different mindset Mm. in a way because for my parents so they were involved in the peace corps yeah which took them overseas so so they lived in chile for a while then they were in central america they ended up in rome for a while all before i was born but then back in the states and i think for them it it was always there was it it wasn't easy to integrate back into sort of small town mentality in some ways yeah Mm. yeah because you've got that you've got a very very different view you've got that clarity of distance don't Mm. you um it's almost like talking to somebody about the problems in their marriage and seeing it's really really flipping obvious but obviously when you're in it Mm. it's really hard yeah yeah Yeah, that's right so coming through sort of teenage years did you end up in one place more permanently or did you continue moving around with the family no we can every two and a half years off somewhere else so um probably so you didn't get sent to like a boarding school for 
No. For your teenage no, years? No. Um, I spent most of my teenage years in Kuwait um, or in the States for a year. Um, and then I, then I did go to boarding school. My last year, I went to Salzburg. And I just pick, <laughs> I picked a school out of the brochures. And my dad was like, yeah, go for it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and I like the idea of snow because I'd been in so many hot places all my life. And I thought, that looks nice. Look at that snow. I'm going right. to go there. I'm going to go to Europe, huh? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, that's really interesting. And, and through your high school years, or maybe describe that time on your own, sort of in a new country like that. Was that quite different from being with your family? or? Um, I think at that point, probably any 17-year-old or 18-year-old would love to live by themselves. Mm-hmm. I think that's a fantasy for a lot of 17 and 18 year olds. It definitely was the same for me. So it was really easy. Yeah. Yeah. You, you get to live in a boarding house with a bunch of your friends, um, you know, learn um, on site, um, hang out all weekend with your friends, not get told to clean your room. Mm-hmm. It was awesome. Yeah. Yeah. No, that sounds what's, pretty what's good. What's not to like? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. And did you know, sort of thinking through the next stage of your life, did you know that there was areas that you enjoyed study-wise or not so much? Or did you know where your, where your life was headed? Yeah. I had a really neat teacher. Um, I had a really neat teacher at Salzburg International Preparatory School. Um, and his name was Roy Escadero Gillette, which is a very interesting name. He was... Um, he was I think he had just graduated from Harvard and was bumming around in Europe and decided to get a job to, you know, pay for his coffees and train mm-hmm. tickets. And mm-hmm. um, he ended up teaching English literature to us in our senior year at SIPS. And um, and he was, he really, really got me excited about English literature. I really loved my courses with him. Mm. Um, and I think that, that that also, interestingly, we, we had a visitor from Tufts University who came all the way to Austria to speak to our school. Um, she was traveling through as well. And that's how I ended up at Tufts because um, I'd looked at a couple of different schools um, and I thought Tufts was going to be really interesting, specifically because they had the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy, um, which was a, bla- a, a really good hiring sort of place for the State Department. I thought I would probably follow in my father's footsteps and do exactly the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so I went ahead to go to Tufts because of the Fletcher School, um, ended up uh, starting off with English literature and then ended up with a, with a major in um, Soviet and Eastern European foreign policy. <laughs> Right. <laughs> <laughs> with the idea that I would take the foreign service exam like my dad did. Mm-hmm. Um, but the year that I graduated, was um, it was actually on hold because um, there was some lawsuit around whether or not it was a, it, it was a, an exam that could be presented to all from a diversity point of view. And that's really interesting, right? Mm, I mean, yeah. that long ago, you wouldn't have thought anybody would be thinking about that, but they were. Mm. Um, so it was canceled. And as a result of that, I moved to New York and started my career in TV. Wow. Yeah. And the, the high school teacher who kind of inspired you about English literature, mm. what, what was it that they were able to do or convey that made it a subject that you loved? passion. Mm. You know, I think if you look back and you think of the teachers that really inspired you, it's because they themselves were inspired mm-hmm. and they just loved the they loved the subject that mm. they were teaching. I mean, equally I had a, an amazing teacher at Tufts who was century 17th century French women's literature. And I mean, you could have taken that and made that bone dry, mm. um, but she was just so passionate about um, the books that we were reading and making sure that we understood the points mm-hmm. and 
um, and and just made it made it so that we could imagine along with her mm. um, and learn along with her. It was really yeah. It's that's the inspiration is all that passion. Yeah, which I guess is applicable to the things that you and I both do today as well, right? Like thinking about entrepreneurship. Yeah, you know, and what Ministry of Awesome does. There's some parallels there, right? Yeah. If, if you have the passion, people, yeah. people can sense it. Yeah, mm. that's right. Yeah. yeah. So you moved to New York then? And yep. yeah, w- television? What, what so, was that about? So I moved to New York and I got a, I actually got a financial analyst job first and then um, everybody was made redundant. And that's probably a really good thing because mergers and acquisitions has never been my destiny. Um, but then I got a job at um, a company called Major Market Television and we represented TV stations across the country. Mm-hmm. And my job was essentially what they call brand solutions. It's really quite dull. Um, people would come up with new products um, advertisers like Unilever or Procter and Gamble or Samsung or whoever would come up with new products and then it was uh, my job to come up with fantastic sponsorship ideas uh-huh. around those products so for example if there was the Utah Winter Games I would um, put them together with Samsung's new device of some sort that would make sense um, from a brand and identity point of view so I guess you could call it advertising slash marketing hmm. Yeah. And that was representing the television stations themselves mm-hmm. or yep. Yeah, so there was 52 stations across the country mm-hmm. um from Los Angeles to New York in all of the major markets. Um and so basically I worked with the advertisers to understand what they needed and then went back to the TV stations and we would construct something that would work. I see. And at that point, were you still, did you, did you have your eyes on doing the test to, to follow the diplomatic career path or, or had that door sort of naturally shut? I think the door kind of, it, it naturally shut and it really shut when I went home to see my dad one year um, in Lahore, Pakistan, and, um, and he'd set up an appointment for me with the local um, CIA chief um, because he thought that would also be something that would be interesting to me. And um, and when I asked the guy what it was that he did, he he was it, it confused me so much. And then it then it became really clear that it was all about leverage, and um, and I found it completely unappealing. And I also at that point was starting to feel a little bit, bit political, mm. um, and not as as 100% red, white, and blue as you'd probably need to be if that was going to be your motivation. Mm. Um, so I kind of went off the whole idea of working for government as a whole and certainly representing government mm. was not my not my thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. So how long did you do that working with advertisers and, and TV um, for? About, I think it was three years all up. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then I went to Budapest because I'd been in the States long enough, you know. Uh, yeah, I, you were used to moving <laughs> every, every couple of years. Every three years, let's go. <laughs> yep. um, so I'd probably done my stint in my, in my one place mm-hmm. with the scenery not changing. So I went to Budapest um, and I met a German investment banker there who was um, taking um, a sh- um, an organization public on NASDAQ. And it was a Hungarian Broadcasting Corporation, and he needed somebody to set up the TV station and do all the programming and get all of the different 
um, all of the different groups organized, the, all the different departments and so on. And, um, and so I teamed up with Peter Klenner at Major Market Television and helped launch um, what was called MSAT, hmm. uh, which was the first uh, 100% commercial satellite TV station in Budapest. Hmm. Um, so I'm proud to say I brought, um, I brought Benny Hill <laughs> <laughs> to, to Budapest, yep. <laughs> which played from 5.30 to 6 p.m. Monday through Friday. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and a number of other really good, show, really good shows. Yeah, and you enjoyed that experience living. Oh, that was in wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it was. Um, it's a. It's a, it was a time in my life that I used to tell my mom stories about that time. Mm-hmm. It was crazy because um, I guess I'm just trying to think of the timing. I guess that I guess Budapest was beginning to commercialize probably. Uh, five years before, maybe four years before I got there. And um, and even in the company that I joined, because they'd only just gone public, this was the, their first commercial experience. Okay. Um, you've got to understand... So big transitions culturally well, and societally. And- yeah, but I'm walking out of WABC, right. <laughs> you know, in New York City, and I get to Budapest. Yeah. And... Um, they literally were renting videos at the video shop and then broadcasting them, like getting right. them to line up their movies for the week and then broadcasting them free of all copyright infringements <laughs> <laughs> and so on. And I just thought, this can't be. This where's the studio? Where's the where's who's behind you? You know, right. where's the machinery? What's really going where's on? The, what's going on here? It was like Wizard of it was like the Wizard of Oz. Um, that there was this TV station and you could see it from the front as a viewer, but behind there was literally like uh, two people in a garage right. and all sorts of fakery. And, um, and so the first day that I turned up, that was hilarious. So here I am in my little blue suit <laughs> from New York City. And, uh, and I walked in and opened the door and there was no one at reception. And, um, and I stood around for a while waiting to hear, hear somebody turn yeah. up. And yeah. after a while, this guy wanders in, he's got long hair tied back in a ponytail. And he's like, he's like, Yoda Podkivaduk says, says, Hey to me in Hungarian. And I said, you know, Kibanak, you know, um, so I'm Marion. I'm Marion Peppers here to see, uh, you know, uh, Imre Kovac. I'm the new marketing director. He says, no, you're not. <laughs> and I, I said, yes, I am. I mean, yes. Um, can Do you know where I'm supposed to go or who I'm supposed to see? So it turned out there was already a marketing director and nobody had bothered to tell the marketing director All and right. nobody had bothered to tell Kovac Imre and nobody had bothered to tell Karchi, the guy who'd come out, that I was turning up and nobody knew where I was supposed to sit and nobody knew where my computer was. Wow. And everyone was like, get the foreigner out of the building now. Um, it was uh, insane. And from then, it was basically... It was almost like I'd open the door and I'd put like a little wedge under the door. And every day it was my job to push that door open, 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 open until we had some kind of semblance of um, me being an acceptable member (laughs) of of the team and then explaining what I was going to be doing there versus what Aniko, the other marketing director, was doing. Um, And Aniko had used to be a um, her previous experience was as a hotel spy. 
um, for the Hungarian Secret Service, right. which had, I was just wondering how that was TV and marketing, but really it came in really well because all of her peers were also in marketing now. Um, so she was able to get like front page stories about our TV shows and so on and so wow. on without any kind of, you know, it was all just the whole networking the piece network, was incredibly yeah. important. Huh. But gosh, it showed me a lot about how, I mean, I was basically the one-eyed man leading the blind. Uh-huh. And, uh, and actually, so I came in thinking, this is how it works. And actually, they showed me how it works. <laughs> Because it could work in any number of different ways. Right. Yeah. Especially, yeah, if it hadn't been done before, then That's right. there is no Reinvent template. the wheel. Yeah. yeah. Just start all over again. Yeah. So it was exciting times then. Oh, it was. Yeah. 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 Very frustrating, enraging, um, such an illuminating time as well, mm-hmm. meeting so many really neat people. Um but yeah, what a what a job. Yeah, it must have been a great excuse to meet people though as well. Absolutely. You know, to be setting something up like that cuz yeah. presume you're out marketing and constantly and constantly meeting everybody from all of the different companies that were setting up all over Budapest. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, and it was a time of incredible growth as well. Mm-hmm. Um for the country economically, people's lives were changing dramatically. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and Budapest, of course, itself as a backdrop, you know, what a beautiful city. Mm. Yeah, incredible people, great history. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So were you tempted to stay there longer than you did? Or was, did you know it was time to move to the next thing? Was it another three years? Or? Uh, yeah, it was actually. <laughs> <laughs> funny, There's a trend there. Funny that. <laughs> yeah. um, no, it was three years because um, by then I'd had my son, Tal, um, mm. and I was moving um, we were moving back to London, um, and so um, I had a very short stint there with my own startup, which was a um, it was a startup and an outdoor billboard. There was a, a tech thing that we did to make it look 3D, um, and I did that for about a year and a half, and then sold it, and then got a um, a really exciting new role with Universal Studios. And then that whole part of my career began, but it was very much the same thing all over again, just but for a bigger company. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. So what what was that like then? That was more on the movie side of things? No, it was TV, movies, games, um, the whole nine yards. They had um, Universal Studios Networks was where I was employed. So they had a couple of TV channels. Mm. um, And my role was to drive... Um, opportunities around all of their key franchises. So, for example, if a movie would come out, at the same time there would be a game, and at the same time there would be um, licensing opportunities, mm-hmm. and at the same time there would also be some something happening at the cinema, which they also owned, um, right. and there would be something happening with the soundtrack, which they also owned. Yeah. And so rather than each of those things launching on their own, it would launch all together and pull along with it PlayStation, for example, right. um, and and just make a, a little bit more of an impact than it normally would have. Mm. So it's mm. the value chain, like looking at all the different places where there's value from this new release. That's right. And then going for it, That's which right. is actually similar to the first job you had with the advertising, 100%. Right? Yeah. It's the same thing again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was the same thing all over again. But this time it was in London, and, um, and yeah. that is a great city to work in. Mm-hmm. Um, and also it was with Universal. So there were all these trappings of celebrity and excitement around it right. that, that, that yeah, I thought was... Yeah, it's a big was, city. Yeah. yeah, and it was really exciting from the perspective of, like, so... 
uh, when Love actually launched, I took my nanny to the premiere and Hugh Grant and all those guys were sitting in front of us and she was just like, wow, wow, yeah. this is amazing. Um, and, uh, you know, when 8 Mile launched, it was the same thing again. So always it was a little bit more in the center of things, I guess, because yeah. it was a big movie studio as opposed to TV stations or mm -hmm. far flung over in Budapest. Yeah. So that was kind of fun. And what was really different about it was that um, with Universal, we had so much more power in everything that we did because everything that we did, everyone already had heard of. So we could leverage so much more. Mm. Um, and so that meant the deals that you were doing were that much bigger and had that much more impact. Um, mm. And and probably yeah. if you're proposing things, people are more open to it, more yeah. receptive. 100%. To, you know, yeah. whether it's a food tie-in or a event tie-in or whatever it is. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, so a lot easier. Yeah. So we're talking here in New Zealand. Just bring us up to speed in terms of how did you come to New Zealand? Oh, that was uh, one late night in Shoreditch. I met um, Martin Allen Johnson, my mm -hmm. awesome husband, mm -hmm. and he was on his OE. Um, and we met in the Dragon Bar. And, um, and then about a year and a half later, we were married and then had Lila. Mm -hmm. And then Talisker, Lila, and Martin, and Marion moved to Christchurch. Wow. Yeah. And what did you know about New Zealand before then? Because that hadn't been on your father's diplomatic core. Not corps. nothing. <laughs> I had met one Kiwi um, in my life that I knew of. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and funnily enough, I caught up with him in Auckland <laughs> <laughs> about... Um, about two years ago, uh -huh. um, and he's still a really cool dude. And I just remember him. I think he was in, he was in Pakistan, and he played the guitar, and he used to play guitar at parties all the time. And he used to play um, split ends, which at the time, obviously, they're a Kiwi band. I had yeah, no idea. No one would have heard. Um, it, yeah. He played all of these Kiwi songs, um, and he was a really cool guy. But that's all I knew about in, uh, about New Zealand. Mm -hmm. um, and then when I met my husband, obviously, we did a little bit of a tour first, where he did the New Zealand cell. So we. We, okay. went, we went around Christchurch and Queenstown and West Coast and um, all over the place. And mm -hmm. I just thought, this is an amazing place to bring up children. Because at that point, that's all I was thinking about. Mm -hmm. I really wanted to get out of the huddle. I wanted to get away from, um, you know, London is a great place to work, but it's not a great place to live. And, mm -hmm. well, it is in so many ways. Mm -hmm. But, you know, um, M25, an hour and a half to work every day, mm -hmm. crushes of people wherever you go. Taking your kid to the pool means that you get 45 minutes in a red wristband and then you need to hop out because the next, you know, a million people are coming in. Yeah. It's just really, it's a hard place to live when mm. you just want to breathe and, you know, and be alive. Yeah, um, yeah it's so, very different. Yeah. yeah. So coming yeah. here was just, it was, it was so change making for all of us. Mm. And when was that? When did you come? That was 12 years ago. Okay. Yeah. All right. Interesting. Yeah. So it was just kind of just before the earthquakes, really. Yep. A couple of years before. That's right. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. Um, and the funny thing is, it's not really that funny, but my husband always says to our daughter, Lila, who's now, uh, okay, so no, wait, hang on. Must have been 13 years ago because Lila's now 14. Mm -hmm. um, always says to Lila, you know, I grew up in Christchurch all my life in Redwood. And Diamond Harbor, and mm -hmm. nothing ever happened here. 
<laughs> nothing, nothing, nothing. Just flat, straight, nothing.、Mm-hmm. And since you've been here, <laughs> it's like the center of all sorts of things、That's、happening.、Right. Earthquakes you know? and shootings and、yeah. fires and、yeah. all types of things. Yeah. yeah. Oh wow. So、um, you came then thirteen years ago、yep. or so. Yeah. Yeah.、Um, I'm always just curious in terms of. You know what a new country is like in your context. You'd lived in so many different countries. Did, was it difficult for you to adapt to New Zealand, or was it fairly easy? Or um, I don't think it, it. It was hard in some respects. I think it's really easy when you have little children、mm-hmm. to just slot yourself in. Because you're immediately amongst people who also have children, yeah, and your children play with other children, so you you have that opportunity to meet people.、Mm-hmm. Um, but interestingly enough, I found it I found it really really hard to make friends in Christchurch,、mm-hmm. and I didn't expect that. I really didn't because、mm-hmm. you know Martin and all of his you know OE guys. Were so friendly,、mm. um, so I figured Cantabrians would be super duper friendly,、mm. and I think they are to a certain point. But I also think it's kind of like how it was tough when I moved back home to the States.、Mm-hmm. Everyone's been there; they've、mm. already got their groups,、yep. right? They don't really need to meet this new. Stars that circle yeah. this particular place. Yeah, yeah. and、mm. they and it's not that they're being unfriendly, but their lives are full.、Mm. You know, like if you met somebody brand new tomorrow that you thought was really awesome,、um, would you become their best friend?、Mm. I don't know.、Mm. And、um, it's it's it was really hard to create those relationships that would end up deepening over time.、Mm-hmm. And it's only now, fourteen years later, that I can look around and say, you know, I've met some some really good friends here.、Mm. But it was a long time happening.、Mm. Yeah. They're they're not on the outset like、um, doing their best to bring you around and invite、yeah. them over to your house and incorporate you into friend groups and yeah, so on. Yeah, we're and, having a barbecue. Yeah, stop on by. Yeah. Yeah, not really. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. I I feel similar. I think for me, my mindset has changed because, like you, I've moved around a lot, and I used to move like every three years. We would be moving. I was in London, Tokyo, Sydney. And then back to Christchurch,、yeah. and I think for me it's been a mindset shift. Thinking I'm here for the longer term,、yeah. and therefore I'm investing more deeply. You know, I'm doing a podcast. Like、yeah. if I knew that I was about to leave, I probably wouldn't be investing as much in the place. And you know what? I think you've just、um, I think you've just pushed the tennis ball right back at me. I think you're quite right. I、mm. think probably when I first got here, I was thinking I was leaving in three years.、Mm. You know, and I wasn't actually thinking it, but that's just what I do. <laughs> <laughs> well, given the the so, history, it sounds like that had been. I'm just going to lightly live here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah.、Um, and probably, yeah. So that's yeah. It's maybe not so much about Cantabrians as it was about Marian Johnson at that point. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. It, it, I think or both. It, it could be a combination. I think for me, it's definitely helped to realize. Okay, this is where we are. I've、yeah. got young kids. You know. This is where I want them to grow up with a sense of identity,、yeah. and actually, the key thing for my wife and I is we looked at each other. Like I was about to turn forty, it was like this is a one of those momentous times of life. It was like, where do we want to be when we retire?、Mm. You know, and that actually was a big shift of thinking. Is if we want to go to the place we want to be and be really committed there, you know,、mm. yeah, it's been a big. 
it's been a big help for me anyway. Maybe hmm. it will be a help for some listeners. I don't know. Oh, definitely. <laughs> yeah. 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 Are we allowed to, in a podcast, ask Stephen about his background? <laughs> yeah, you can ask me. <laughs> People often say someday you should be on the podcast yourself. Yeah. 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 I mean, yeah. But I- similar to you, I, I've lived in six different countries, so probably not as many as you. But I've lived in America, in Chile, Japan, New Zealand, Australia, the UK, and then multiple cities within each of those places. So Florida, Oregon, California, you know, you get the picture. So I've moved around a lot. Yeah. (laughs) So very similar background to you as well. And I actually found the same thing because we we used to move around a lot. And coming back to America, for example, it was actually really difficult. Um, I went for my senior year in California, and it was really hard time to go in and be like everyone's already got their ecosystem of friends you know yeah senior year that's just obnoxious yeah yeah it was tough yeah yeah but anyway back to you and (laughs) (laughs) thinking about Christchurch because I'd love to find out more about Ministry of Awesome and just things that are going on today so can you just bring us um, through the next few years and bring us up to speed and how did you get involved with Ministry of Awesome Well, I got involved with Ministry of Awesome because I was working um, with um, a a startup called Fluent IQ. It was called Fluent Scientific. Mm -hmm. And we had a testing platform for non-native English speakers that we hoped would take, um, would make things like TOEFL and IELTS unnecessary. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it still should, but you know, it's, um, it's still a startup and it's still finding its way. Mm-hmm. Um, and in that, in that organization, um, we did a lot of work with international education. Um, and we did a number of pilots with the University of Canterbury. And all that came about because this incredible woman called Erica Austin, Mm -hmm. who at the time was at Ministry of Awesome. Mm -hmm. And Ministry of Awesome and Erica connected us with our first pilot customer. Hmm. And I couldn't have been more grateful. Um, And she invited us along, or she invited me along to an international um, student program to to meet people from um, various universities and um, educational establishments around Canterbury. Mm. And I think it was part of the Christchurch Educated Group. Anyway, it opened the doors and it, and it, and it was mm. really educational for us to understand who were the players and what were they doing and what did they want. Um, but without those connections that Erica and Ministry of Awesome shared so selflessly, you know, as as the role that they did, they were absolute enablers. Um, we wouldn't have been able to get those pilot programs mm. going, and so well, when, a shout out to Erica. A shout out who, to Erica, who's a mutual friend and has been on the podcast. So shout out to Erica as an yeah. incredible connector, mm-hmm. and shout out to Lauren for all the work that they did at Ministry of Awesome alongside Katerina and Gina well before I got there. And of course, shout out to Kyla who, and Vicki Buck and Sasha McMeeking and Sam Johnson and all of the people who came before. Because yeah. when I first started, so anyway, the role came up at Ministry of Awesome mm-hmm. um, and I was still at Fluent. Um, but Fluent was definitely going in a different direction. So I was definitely thinking it's testing for students. 
Um, but others within the organization were thinking it's actually for recruitment. I just didn't see it happening. Mm-hmm. I really didn't believe in that as a target customer. Mm-hmm. Um, and so really it was kind of time for me to look elsewhere. Mm-hmm. And at just the moment that I thought, I think it might be time for me to look elsewhere, the role for Ministry of Awesome, um, Chief Awesome Officer opened up. Mm-hmm. And I contacted Jeff Brash, who was at the time on the board and just said, hey, what are you, is this crazy for me to even be thinking about it? Um, and he said, no, put your hat in the ring. Let's see how it goes. Um, so I did and interviewed. And um, by the time I'd met everybody on the board, I definitely wanted the role. Mm-hmm. Um, and I came on board. Um, and it's the first it's the first role that I've ever had where no matter where I went and no matter who I spoke to, if they'd heard of Ministry of Awesome, they never had anything but great to say. Everybody was welcoming and curious and supportive and either wanted to be part of the community or were part of the community. And that's a that's a that's a testament to everyone who was at Ministry of Awesome before I got there, seven years before, six years before I got there. Mm. Um, and when I think about that now, that is really so unusual. Um, that doors just open, poof, like that, with no issues whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when I first got to Ministry of Awesome, the, the big job was to work out how we were going to sustainably grow and whether there was a place for Ministry of Awesome. Because, of course, Ministry of Awesome came about as a community um, organization that was focusing on the kind of re re regenerated Christchurch, like what were we going to be? And Mm. I say this and it sounds really facetious and I don't mean it that way, but I always think of Ministry of Awesome as as, um, basically throwing up rainbows all over Christchurch because Mm. Christchurch was in a really dark place after the earthquake. Mm. And I think Ministry of Awesome just did so much reimagining and they brought they brought a lot of vision and um, the opportunity for dialogue, the opportunity for collaboration, the opportunity for people to design and think about how they wanted their future city to be. And I don't mean how it would look or you know what quadrant would be where. Um, I'm talking about the future vision for who would be here and what would we be known for and what are our future industries and what do we want it to look like. Um, so that's kind of where we were. And a large part of what we did was focus on um, this brand new thing called social enterprise. Mm-hmm. Um, and Katerina and Lauren and Gina and Erica, I think that the week that I began was the social enterprise um, mm-hmm. conference. Yep. Um, the World Forum. That's yeah, it. The World it, Forum. It was around that time. Was yeah. right in the middle of Christchurch, and it was. Uh, we were. I mean, saw delegations from all over the place, mm. um, and and I had not really heard of social enterprise before. I mean, I understood that it was business with impact um, or business with purpose, um, and but seeing all of those life examples pouring into town and talking about their missions and their purposes was pretty exciting. Mm. And at the time, I think also Akina was in its very early stages. Um, and so I, I, I saw that that was a place where Ministry of Awesome was really successful from the perspective of meeting these capable kind of change maker types 
people who had vision for the city and had a real sense of their own purpose and wanting to make a positive impact. And that's where we began this really strong program in startup activation. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's not we, that was happening before I even got there, but mm-hmm. we could see that that there was such a reaction to it and mm-hmm. we were meeting so many people every day that to me, I thought that's part of this wheel mm-hmm. that just needs to keep going. Mm-hmm. That's something that the city obviously needs, otherwise we wouldn't have so many people turning up to be part of the program. Um, and then at the same time, there was a real changing of the guard as well. So um, Joanna Norris became the CEO at Christchurch NZ mm-hmm. from Tom Hooper. Um, I think even Leandel Zeal was early in the term. Mm-hmm. And certainly, um, was it... Uh, so Leanne from the chamber took over her new role. Yep. Um, so suddenly all of these women are suddenly in these new roles and there's a new idea of, or there's some new energy around, okay, what's, what's the next step? Mm-hmm. Cause now we're in sort of three quarters, mid to three quarters rebuild. Now, what are we, what are we looking to become? What, what's the big vision? Mm-hmm. Um, and Joanna and her team started working on the idea of our future city mm-hmm. and on the strategies around the supernodes. So which particular sectors is this city going to really double down on for the most, um, for the best possible impact for high value jobs of the future that are also for a sustainable New Zealand? Um, and that, in a sense, it was pretty clear straight away, if we were going to be that future city of innovation, um, if we were going to be that future city where uh, future food and fiber, transport and aerospace, um, tech and, um, help me now, I've forgotten the last one, health tech and med tech, um, we're going to be the dream visions. Well, you can't do that without your startups and your innovators and your entrepreneurs. Mm. They don't just come out of nowhere fully formed unless we were going to, you know, bring in these companies from overseas Mm. when we had such great talent here. So it seemed pretty clear that there was one great big hole, and that was that whole startup pipeline that really needed to be fed, um, that needed to have more volume and traffic through it in order for us to have an ecosystem that was vibrant mm. and that had actual impact. Mm. So um, so that's what we began focusing on. Um, and at that time, also, I have not even mentioned Kit, Kit Hinden, who mm-hmm. was our startup activator. Also, huge shout outs to Kit um, for the for the incredible role that she played in meeting all these new mm-hmm. new startups who were had big visions and had big ideas and wanted to do something. So she ran the startup activation program and then later handed it over to our current startup incubation manager, Jacob Vargas. Mm-hmm. Um, and and ever since that kind of transition to looking at startup, looking at pipeline. So now we're not focused 100% on social entrepreneurship, we're focused on sustainable business. We're focused on these key supernode sectors of food, fiber, med tech, health tech, transport, aerospace, and then of course technology underpinning the whole thing. Mm. And what that means is that we are at that first step of driving that pipeline, talking about that pipeline, um, making sure that we get as much talent as possible 
um, attract them, retain them, get them through, show them that their vision is possible, and then show them how to build their um, their innovations here mm. in Christchurch, rather than losing them to where we were losing them, which is Auckland, Wellington, Sydney, Singapore, all over the place, mm. um, because it wasn't really seen that the ecosystem here was happening. Yeah. Um, yeah, so that's oh, how we that's got to cool. Ministry of Awesome. Yeah, that's amazing. And I'd love to find out a bit more about some of the things that you're doing today, because mm-hmm. I know there's some challenges and, and that. But just to reemphasize some of the points that you're making from mm-hmm. my own experience, because people won't know this, but Seed's podcast has is partly intertwined with Ministry of Awesome, because I remember talking with Lauren, your predecessor, about this concept I had for a podcast and she was like, yeah, you should look into it, explore it, go talk to Plains FM, find out about the equipment. So there's actually a bit of the, the origins of this podcast is because of that encouragement that I got from her. Yep. And actually, Kit, I think she was episode nine, maybe. Yeah. She was one of the very first ones I interviewed about Ministry of Awesome. So there's been a, a legacy. And I think Coffee and Jam, maybe five or six times I've been able to speak there now because it's, yeah. it's, it's been such a great platform for people to share something new mm. um so yeah it's really it's really fun for me to be doing this interview having seen the role that ministry of awesome plays that's right and i think i met you on day two so i would have started on a monday yep. and coffee and jam was on a tuesday yeah <laughs> and have been i'm pretty there, yeah. sure that that was when i met you and you said that your you were on your third or fourth episode of the seeds podcast and yep. you were um and that was the one about um what is yeah, it like to be 10? Yeah. Oh, that was great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's still one of my favorite ones. I'll, I'll, have to put, I'll put links in the show notes so people can find these things. Yeah. 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 Oh, that's really cool. Um, and also, you know, for a while there, we were working really closely together on the Epic Awesome relationship as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and your startup handbooks and all of the basics that people need to know when they're first starting out and mm-hmm. particularly around social enterprise as well. Um, are all part of the Ministry of Awesome journey very early on in the piece. Mm-hmm. Um, so now we're we're in a little bit of a different scenario. So we're not at St. Asaph Street anymore. Um, we did the joint venture with ARA and Open to Oaxaca, the Center for Growth and Innovation, which is like, this, well, it's not like, it is the startup hub for Christchurch mm-hmm. and Canterbury. Um, and... I think that Christchurch is a really lucky city. Uh, we have not only Teohaka, but we've also got a real fountain for excellent startups coming out of um, the University Center for Entrepreneurship. Um, and with without the University Center for Entrepreneurship and their summer startup program, we we would would not be in the position that we're in with so many really strong startups in the pipeline. I mean, people like Atik. Um, have come through that program and so many more. Um, and we we are also lucky enough to have, let's see, who else has come from the UCE pipeline? Well, Komodo Monitor. Komodo Monitor. They're there. And, came um, out of the summer startup program at UCE. And um, and so did eClean. So yeah. did Nairi Scartosi. Yeah. Um, yeah, so there's, there's a really excellent student pipeline coming out of UCE. And I guess the way that we're different is that well, for one, we are attached to Ara, and one of our big, um, one of our big jobs to do, and that we're we've been doing for the year and a half that we've been associated with Ara has been driving that startup pipeline out of the Ara talent base. Mm. So you may not know this, but Ara is fourteen thousand students strong. Um, they're obviously in the central city, and um, 
and a number of their schools are turning out some incredible graduates um, from the point of view of that startup potential. Mm -hmm. um, and we've just finished doing a really interesting workshop with um, some of the RS students from the EDI, the Enterprise Digital Innovation Team, um, around Smart City with Christchurch City Council. So there's some really um, there's some really good work happening there in terms of startup founders from Aura um, that you should be hearing a little bit more about in the very near future. Mm -hmm. But I mean, this is what it takes. So it's it's all about putting those seeds out there mm -hmm. um, and making sure that the 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 ground is fertile and and making sure that people have that mindset for starters, that they can do something, that it's not crazy, that yes, they can, they, they are just like the other ones that they read about. Mm -hmm. um, and if they have an idea, um, and if they have that ambition, and, and they have some at least of that capability that this city and Ministry of Awesome and UC and organizations like yourselves um, are here to support them. And just we're all about rolling that red carpet out for mm. high growth um, startups and entrepreneurs. Mm. So it's an extraordinary it's an extraordinary city to be in from that perspective, mm. because there is such an incredible support system um, for everybody out there. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And I, I, I can think on, you know, without too much thought of a number of people who fit within that criteria, mm -hmm. like MedSav, mm -hmm. for example, mm -hmm. and um, All Goods and um, Beyond New Zealand, and all these young entrepreneurs coming through with these new innovative ideas. It is, yeah. and think about what COVID has done for us. Mm -hmm. I mean, I know this has been said again and again and again, but needs must rip through tons of red tape. Mm. You know, um, I think it was um, Scott Errol, who's the CEO of New Zealand Health Informatics. And, um, and Scott was saying to me when we were in lockdown, he was saying, it's amazing what's happened here. You know, for the longest time, we have been trying to digitize um, prescriptions mm. and there has just been so much flack. You know, it's been, we've been trying to do it Can't for 10 years. Yeah. Needs Let's must. Do Let's yep. do it. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So this is the opportunity. Innovation is definitely the name of the day. Yeah. It's interesting as well. This is why I love doing the podcast is hearing about the first jobs that you did, you know, in the TV context, because what you were doing there was thinking about um, opportunity from multiple players. And in a way, the challenge that you've just described, you know, identifying Ryman's involved and, you know, the health boards involved and entrepreneurs are involved. It's kind of bringing the same skill set, isn't it? connecting it people it is yeah. yeah i think the connecting people is a big is a is a big thing um mm -hmm. in terms of a theme through through my career mm -hmm. and um and i'll tell you what is a a thing that i really love about my role is that in my role i'm genuinely getting the opportunity to meet people who have vision meet people who um, have ambition um, to, to make something happen, to make something better. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I don't want to overstate it. Everything is not about, you know, a, a rocket ship and everything is not about solving huge healthcare problems. Not every startup is, is that moonshot, you know, sort of focused. Mm -hmm. um, but it's about taking somebody... Um, taking somebody's dreams and ambitions and showing how you can make it happen. And that's, that's awesome. Mm -hmm. You know, there's nothing about 
the role that we have at Ministry of Awesome that is trying to take anything out. We're just trying to add in. Mm. Um, and, and I love that. Mm. Um, yeah, I really love that. I remember when I was at Universal Studios and we were on Bond Street and they were having all those anti-globalization marches um, just two blocks down on Oxford Street. And I would take off during lunch hour and go march in the... <laughs> March in the marches. Meanwhile, coming back to work for Coca Cola, and um, you know, and always thinking, I'm like a, I'm, I'm a, I'm a sneak in this building. I shouldn't really be here, but you know, it's so nice to be with an organization where I don't think there's anything extractive happening mm. here. It's all about the future. It's all about the people that we're working with. It's all about enabling them. Mm. And I love the city, you know, how many years later I've, I've decided I'm here. <laughs> so I've done four tours of three now. Yeah, um, that's commitment. I've done, that is commitment. <laughs> yeah, I should have yeah. left at least eight years ago, yeah. nine years ago. Um, and, and for me, the vision for Christchurch is, is that is the, is very much shared with what Christchurch NZ um, is thinking in terms of those high value jobs in being able to live in a place where things are done um, that we get the we get a better world through innovation, but without losing anything. That we that we are not interested in being a Silicon Valley. So we're not going to say this is the new Silicon Valley or anything like that. We don't want to be close to that at all. What what we want is to be um, an innovation success in a New Zealand way, which is a way that's not extractive. So it's not all about the money and it's not all about the shareholders. Um, it's it's actually a really positive vision, and I, I believe in that um, mm. so strongly, mm. and even more so now that um, you know w- when we look at the rest of the world and we look at what's happening, um, it's really quite frightening. I'm just so proud to be a New Zealander and and really pleased to be in Christchurch of all places. Mm. Mm. Well, I endorse that. I agree with you. It's um, great to be in the ecosystem with you as well, because I think there's a lot of good people doing good work, like you say, and. Um, yeah, the more people we can gather together with that same ethos, mm. that it's not just about how much we can take out, but it's also how much we can give back. Mm. And, you know, it's got to be a good thing. That's right. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I appreciate your time and just thank hearing you, about your life story and understanding better the context for what you do today. Um, and what we'll do is put some links in the show notes so people can find um, some of the things that we've talked about. But I see what Ministry of Awesome is doing. And as you know, I wrote an article for Spinoff Magazine yes, last did. year, which was highlighting some of the good things that are going on. So yeah. I've known for a long time that there's some good going on here. And um, it's a pleasure to be able to highlight a little bit of, of it through this podcast. So, all right. Well, thank you for coming on the show. Thanks, Stephen. Well, I hope you enjoyed that interview with Marion. I know for me, there were several things that stood out. And I've known her for quite a while, so it was quite fun to hear about her childhood and growing up moving around the world. Also, I really appreciate the ability that she has to bring together a diverse range of people for a project. And I think she does that really well. And we got hints of why she's able to do that from her background in television. If you enjoyed this, then make sure to check out the almost 200 episodes in the back catalog, because there's lots and lots of content there now. Until next time!